Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered with proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs and weekly live mentorship sessions. Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. This is episode number 112 with Casey Fenton of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. 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 The Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Seth Godin, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Barbara Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Founder Podcast. My name's Nathan Chan. I'm coming to you live from Melbourne, Australia, and I'm the CEO and founder of Founder Magazine. Hope you're having a wonderful day wherever you are around the world. I just want to thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your earbuds with me. And uh, today you're in for an absolute treat. We have an incredible guest. His name is Casey Fenton, and uh, he's the founder of a little company that I'm sure you might have heard of called Couchsurfing.com. If you're not familiar with this concept, essentially uh, the little thing called the sharing economy, you know, Uber, Airbnb, and all these other kind of uh, big, big, big startups now, they all run off this economy of people sharing and optimizing, uh, utilizing and resources that we all have. And, uh, you know, they've been incredibly successful. And Casey Fenton uh, was the one of the first ever, I guess, entrepreneurs and startup founders to really understand that concept of the sharing economy and really, I guess, started out with uh, what he's done with couchsurfing.com and uh, yeah really really interesting story um, all the perils of running a startup especially a first-time startup and and understanding growth pains and what to do and how to manage a massive community and very very interesting guy a lot to learn from what he's got going on uh, so that's it from me 
Uh, before we jump into this episode, though, I just wanted to let you guys know we are working on a really cool project. It's a coffee table book, and uh, it's going to have the best of the best interviews and best content from you know thousands of hours of content that we've uh, built up and created over the past couple of years since starting Founder. It's going to be beautifully designed. Uh, so we'll have, you know, pull quotes and content and advice from, you know, Richard Branson, Ariana Huffington, Tim Ferriss, you name it, some of the best entrepreneurs on the planet that you've listened to on this podcast. If you would like to know more, you can go to foundermag, F-O-U-N-D-R-M-A-G.com forward slash book, and uh, you can sign up to find out more. And uh, this is something that we're really, really excited about and would love your support. And uh, now let's jump into the show. So the first question I ask everyone that comes on is, how did you get your job? Well, I guess it depends on what you call a job. Um, I've had various jobs throughout my life, but right now my job is, you know, entrepreneur. I'm, I'm passionately working on uh, multiple projects that I care a lot about. And it probably came from, you know, early on being someone who is independent and very creative and wanting to really try hard to um, invent. So I probably, uh, it was probably either, you know, my parents, early teachers that kind of gave me that identity uh, or kind of got it on, I guess, on my own through trial and error and exploration and found that that's where I uh, thrive most. Mm. So you invented couch surfing. Talk to us about that. True, yeah. Uh, one of the founders of Couchsurfing. Couchsurfing started um, as a dream back in uh, the late 90s for me. And um, I traveled the world on my own. I was uh, from a small town in Maine. I grew up and I wasn't sure you know, where I would go in life. I, and actually, early on in school, I started, uh, I was studying the classic philosophers, Hume, Descartes, Kant, and I started thinking about free will. And I started thinking about the statistical probability that I would just end up kind of in that same small town of Brownfield, Maine. And I um, started thinking about the dimensions of experience, about intensity, diversity, and frequency of experience. And that got me to just buy random plane tickets to anywhere in the world. And uh, I started hanging out with local people and started to see that hanging out with locals, having that backstage pass to the world was what accelerated my, my learning and uh, more than anything else I'd ever done. And I said to myself, I wonder if there's a way to do this and not just do it myself, but do it with other people. And uh, the idea for couch surfing started to kind of coalesce. And uh, so then I invited a couple other founders uh, and there's many other stories along the way going, you know, in, in uh, Egypt and Iceland that were formative in this um, MVPs, if you will. Uh, and uh, yeah, it kicked it off in 2003. It was private. Not everyone could join. And then after only a hundred people joined in 2004, we decided to kick it off, uh, me and the other founders, um, uh, publicly. Gotcha. So is couchsurfing, because this is, this is massive, and um, I was really excited to hear that we would be chatting, Casey, because everyone knows couchsurfing. Like, it is a thing, and it, it was like one of the first, you know, peer-to-peer um, kind, of, kind of Airbnb concepts where um, – you know, it's it's shared. It's uh, what 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 is the term that that's that's really well known for? What's the technical term? Sorry, the technical term for what? what, what for uh, the sharing, like sharing economy. Yeah, the sharing, sharing economy. economy. Yeah, 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 yeah. So this. Yeah, so sure. Yeah, yeah. So couchsurfing was probably one of the first plays for around the sharing economy using the using the internet. Yeah, 
from what I understand and what, based on what I've seen, yeah, I, I think it, it was one of the first. Uh, some people have called it the granddaddy of the sharing economy, something like that. That's very cool to be a part of that. Um, I mean, we, it was a lot of us had the idea together, like at the same time, I'm sure. Uh, talked to different people, and people said, "Yeah, I thought of that idea too." And you know, I happen to be a computer programmer, so um, and uh, this kind of weird thing where I just won't give up. So it happened that I could program it and kind of keep pushing it, and you know, keep pushing and making it go. So yeah, true. It's uh, I think it it showed a lot of us when we had that experience where we stayed on another person's couch. People gave us hospitality, and we started to share our resources, share our time, share our lives with people that we'd never met or never even imagined we could meet. Um, that really uh, inspired us, and we started all creating com- more companies together that would share resources and uh, improve our world. Mm. So, was was Couchsurfing your first company? I uh, know it, it was uh, actually my second company. The first company it was when I was in um, high school, just getting out of high school, just kind of headed to college, and um, me and a friend we decided to create a company that we could. It would be like a jobs database, kind of like a Dice or something like that, or I guess an Elance or Odesk, Mm. um, Upwork Upwork as it's known these days. Something like that, we could have a job repository, we could travel the world. The the idea is travel the world and you could get jobs and and, uh, do them from anywhere. Uh, Travel being a very important thing early on, did a lot of exploring. And um, actually, I sold that that, uh, company uh, within six months of... um, Getting uh, within starting up, just sold it, got investment, and then eventually sold my my shares in it. Um, but that was a great learning experience. I uh, went on from there uh, to you know work in many other companies. But it was a great way to cut your teeth. And instead of going to college, I started a company. Gotcha. And um, so when did when did couchsurfing uh, really start to take off? Because this is this has been a company around for you know a very very long time. And uh, you guys have gone through many ups and downs, um, and I'm really curious. You guys, you know, you got you know, you had a massive community, uh, very very community driven. That this 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 whole process, take us through the journey. Sure, uh, yeah, I think so like, you, like launched, you said, yeah. a lot of yeah, a lot of ups and downs, a huge challenges. The hardest, probably just some of the hardest things I've ever dealt with in my life from a from a business and a more personal, I guess, perspective, all kinds of things when you're an entrepreneur and you're living and working with the people that you are running a company with, uh, there's a lot of things that, could, that go on there. Uh, so yeah, started off in 2003 in beta, 2004, kind of got it off the ground and got uh, 6,000 people signed up in 2004. And uh, in 2005, I added in the groups and then the meetings functionality. Uh, I just stay up late at night programming, programming for, you know, program for a week straight. I'd sleep for like, you know, maybe two <laughs> nights a week or something like that. Just I, I would travel and couch surf in. Like, I remember couch surfing this summer in 2005 in my friend's um, basement in Anchorage, Alaska. And so I spent a lot of time programming at either Alaska or uh, a friend's house in Hawaii. I basically just get my resource, my, my cost, my monthly cost to the lowest possible drink as many energy drinks as possible and um, see how many lines of code I could pump out uh, in the shortest amount of time. And for me, it wasn't about having beautiful code. It was having code that was scalable and I could get it done quickly and go on and then do the other things like pay the bills or do an interview or whatever else. Mm. To me, everything was super, super utilitarian. Every it was, and I, it was hard for me to, uh, at the time, it was really hard for me to delegate. We started off as a nonprofit, so it felt, felt bad asking anybody to help out with anything. And I really had to learn how to delegate, how to lead over years, because being an introvert, that's not my natural state. 
uh, to read many books and talk with many people about such things. Mm. Um, oh, yeah. So over time, uh, we started kept growing. Every year, it would be like a three, you know, three x growth ish. And over time, it kind of leveled out a bit. We're at 15 million members now. It's been around for about 10, 12 years, um, solidly. Uh, and one of the uh, more challenging stories is we started off as a nonprofit. I uh, you know, grew up in New Hampshire, the state of New Hampshire, and just kind of on a whim, really, decided, oh, maybe we should register as a nonprofit. I did a for-profit before, maybe like a community. It would be fun as a nonprofit. But um, it, if later on, discovered what a challenge that was. It's not, it's not so easy just becoming a nonprofit, uh, especially mm. for something that is trying to innovate. Um, whereas, whereas Couchsurfing is definitely trying, trying to innovate and you know, place its own trail. Yeah, so what so, happened? Oh, yeah. So some people know the story. Some people lived it with me. And, and members around the world, we all lived it together. Uh, it was not the easiest uh, times. So we we were trying to get 501c3 status, which in the U.S. is status given out given out by the Internal Revenue Service, the IRS, for the charitable status. It's like the holy grail, you'd say, of charitable statuses or of nonprofitness. Mm. And we tried to articulate for four or five years to the IRS why we were charitable. We got the best attorneys in the country. We spent at least 250000 if not a lot more, on the lawyering and the time to try to get that status. And finally, after all this time, our examiner, the examiner's boss and the examiner's boss's boss got on the phone with me and said, we deny all 10 ways in which you say you're charitable. In fact, don't even come back to us and try to appeal this anymore. We just do not want to hear from you. This, to us, looks like a way to help people save money. In fact, they were actually asking me whether people should be taxed on the, um, yeah, I was very surprised. It's like, I hadn't thought, never thought of that. I don't think that's a very good idea. Please don't do that. Uh, so um, I, they didn't. Thank you, IRS. Um, but uh, we, it became very clear that we were going to have to convert. And when we started to really look at it more and think about it, Philosophically, we tried to see if there were grants out there. There were no cultural exchange grants, really, maybe $30,000 a year. Not enough to run a, co a company that's, that's uh, 2 to $3 million run rate a year, at least. So mm. we, um, we uh, had to go about the hardest and most challenging you know, conversion from a nonprofit to a for-profit. And one thing that a lot of people don't understand, don't know, aren't aware, because, of course, this is in the weeds, unfortunately, is that when you're a nonprofit and you convert to a for-profit, you can't just leave it's not like you flip a switch you actually have to have the uh have someone from outside of the nonprofit system buy the assets buy, buy the company out into the for-profit world wow. so that was like a, a mind twister for us We're like, oh my gosh how are we gonna do this seems like an impossible scenario i mean we and we can't buy it with our own proceeds we can't buy it, buy it with our own revenue or donations or anything like that and we had a, a ticking you know, the time's ticking because it was clear that we needed to do it within, you know, a few months. So uh, it was the hardest, most challenging and, and stressful time of my life, I, I think. Um, but a good, the good news was that we found um, Benchmark and Omajar, who are top venture capitalists in the world, who are going to help us make it happen, help invest to get, to get that, that, those resources out into the for-profit world, but then also do an, an additional investment so that we could properly fund the company and properly set it, set it on its way in Silicon Valley, and get keep it get its momentum going because it's you know a new a new way of operating. Can't use volunteers anymore. Uh, just it's a it's a company. We and we converted to a B Corp, 
the Benefit Corp, mm. which was the closest we could get to, you know, a hybrid between nonprofit and for-profit, like kind of some of the heart of the, of the nonprofit, but then also like the business acumen of a for-profit to make it sustainable. So that's just kind of the beginning of the cow-surfing story. I mean, it goes on and on. Us in the last few years trying to make it work, uh, trying to work with the board to try to find a sustainable revenue model. I don't think it's materialized yet. Still looking. Uh, if people have ideas, I'd love to hear them. Love hearing from couch surfers on, on, on this stuff always. Uh, and um, but anyway, that's it's been quite quite a journey and a journey that I learned a lot from and, and that I was able to use that learning to go on and start other, other uh, companies and create more adventures. Mm. Now, before we move on to these other ventures, because um, I know I'm really keen to talk to you about Masterly and some other things you got going on, but around this whole couch surfing um, experience that you had, what I find interesting is the way that you speak of of this journey, this adventure. You speak as if um, you know everyone was with it, like your this community, this massive community that you've garnered. You guys were doing it together. And I'm curious around that, like, because I actually was, before we, I, we did this interview, I was doing a lot of reading around um, couch surfing and, and funnily yeah. enough, um, an article even popped up on my Facebook and it was somebody um, that it, it was just someone's personal blog and it appeared that they had used to be, you know, a really, you know, really, really active I'd almost say super fan in your community, in the couch surfing community. And, um, you know, as time and, and they'd been, you know, part of it for, for many, many years, but, um, they detailed in the blog that as time went on, they felt that the, the community kind of dwindled and, and, and they struggled to, to capture what was originally, um, apparently, you know, I wasn't there, but it was a really magical experience when you used to couch surf. Um, I'd just really like to hear your thoughts on that. Oh, awesome question. Yeah, I get that. I do get that question from time to time. And I think it's a combination of a couple of different factors or forces. Number one, I think that when, when, when we all couch surf or when we started using the website, um, it, we've had a magical experience together. It's true. Like we had never gone from, you know, feeling a bit isolated and not sure if the world cares about us to having people that we don't even know in a different country, country, different culture, taking us in, showing us the best of their world, and um, then you know, hanging out and sharing perspectives on the world and updating your whole imagination about what's possible. That's super magic. Mm-hmm. Um, I think as time goes on and people experience that over and over and over and over again, I think that people are like, great, I experienced that, and now sometimes people want to go on and experience something different. That's what I've, I've seen. I've heard people say that. And then also I think in more time when we had more members, the more members we, uh, I, I did my, my best work to try to set the tone. And I think a lot of members did together. We set, try to set the tone of what, what the ethos is about and what it's, what it's like to be a couch surfer mm. as it started to scale. Um, I'm not, sh- I don't know if we were able to keep that in place. It's a hard thing. How do you keep, it's like if you're growing a, a company, right. And you're trying to keep that early culture intact. If you don't do the right things, it's not going to stay intact. So it's a bit, it's a big question. Were we able to keep some of that culture intact? What can we do still to share what the essence of the couch surfing spirit is? People talk about the couch surfing spirit. How can we make it so that everybody using couch surfing doesn't th- think of it as just a free place to stay, but it think, thinks of it as a backstage pass for the world 
where they want to um, have a special experience with um, other awesome people around the world. Mm. So if you knew what you knew now, Casey, what could have you done differently to kind of keep that magic intact? Do you think it would have been possible? I'm just really curious because community is everything, dude. Yeah. And we're seeing we're seeing this more than ever uh, within Founder, and we want to be mm. able to, uh, you know, do the very best by our community that we can. But um, mm-hmm. as you scale, it is as you said, very difficult to maintain. So how can you, how can you protect that? What would have you done differently yeah. in your situation? Great, that's a super awesome question. I've thought a lot about this, and I've hung out around campfires talking about this very question with people, mm. with probably hundreds, if not thousands, of people around the world. Well, there's a couple of different answers in that. One, it could be like, we, we, well, we just need the right materials on the website. We need to have a video, or we need local ambassadors who are just going to tell people about it. I think those are good solutions. Mm. Um, you didn't one have solution, that? We, we did to a, a great degree. We had all kinds of, but it wasn't like uh, it wasn't like somebody had to pass a test. And, and prove that they knew that material. Maybe they were uh, they heard about couch tripping and they were stuck somewhere and they thought, I need a couch right now. I don't know what the culture is about, but I need that couch. So I'm, I'm singularly focused on getting my need met of safety and, and connection. And uh, okay, I know there's a culture, but I'll figure that out later, right? So just kind of depends. I think the easiest way to make sure that a community uh, exhibits the right behavior is give people feedback on it. Uh, it could be that when you have uh, a reference, you simply ask, uh, did this pay- person make you feel like a hotel or did they make you feel like a person? And you know, you could, have, you could slide the slider either way, but it's just a super simple way. People, the first time they get that feedback and it says, oh, more like a hotel, well, then they're going to start to think about what that means and they'll kind of self-police and they'll start to look around and start to think to themselves, well, how do I send the right message? What would it be like if I were um, treating that person as in the way that they want to be treated? Uh, I think that's the kind of that's I think that's the most efficient way in which to get that done. And do you think you would have paid maybe more attention or maybe heavily onboarded people more? You think? Uh, like if I had it to do over again, I think yeah, I would I would go in this direction. I think that uh, that I would have onboarded people and made you know had them go through a couple couple of little quick screens that make sure that whatever the one, two, or three most important things we need people to know and do, make sure they at least know and or promise to do those things. Mm, gotcha. So yeah. um, what happened next? You you know, you, you raised, um, you did a first round of financing led by Benchmark and uh, Omida. What happened next? Because um, yeah. you, guys, you guys had IPO plans. Right. Well, we, uh, we had all kinds of plans. I mean, Sky's the limit, right? We we didn't know what was what we were capable of, but we were very hopeful. Um, we brought in uh, you know some of the best venture capitalists in the world, and we you know did our best to increase increase the numbers over time. But I had the opportunity because I've been uh, I was um, thinking about this other company, uh, Wonder. Wonder being kind of similar to Couchsurfing, but but different, of course. Mm. Um, Couchsurfing being a backstage pass to the world, Wonder being a backstage pass to your identity and your mm. reputation. Most, I mean, we, we don't know what the world's like, but when couchsurfing is there, we you know we can tap in and find out what it's like. Uh, but a lot of times we go through life and we don't know what we are like. We imagine, mm-hmm. um, but we don't know how we're coming across to other people. In fact, there's this fog of causality. It might say, like, we can't quite understand what the cause and effect is in our life. Like, what is causing 
people to experience us in a certain way. And that really was perplexing me for a long time. I was thinking about my own evolution and I was thinking that how can I can't grow if nobody will tell me what they really think of me or how I'm they're they're experiencing my leadership or just my day-to-day interaction. It would be such a powerful experience to to get feedback all the time on myself, on life's most important questions. So I started working on that and then I decided to work on that full time. Uh, that was when we decided we were gonna hire a CEO for Couchsurfing to because I'd only scaled a company to like 30 to 40 people. Mm. And the CEO we hired had scaled companies to hundreds of people. So I said, that's awesome. Um, I would like to learn. But then I also decided to go on and do my own, own thing. I've been working on Couchsurfing for that, at that time for about nine years now at that point, right? So yeah. it was um, time for me to, uh, to try a, a different, potentially larger a challenge. Mm. So I've been working on Wonder App uh, for a couple of years now. And uh, getting closer and closer every day. It's 360 degree feedback on life's most important questions, average anonymous. You can see, um, you can discover what other people think of you. And that's a beautiful thing. That's really interesting. And then once you capture your reputation, most people have a pretty good reputation. You get to share that with the world to accelerate your relationships and your transactions. So mm. it's it's a it starts off with a discover your reputation and it's a long-term universal reputation play. Universal reputation being like a holy grail, again, that you hear in the venture community as a holy grail. People have been trying to trying to build for a long time, but no one's been able to do it. It's been the, They start off with, if, the, if you build it, they will come, then nobody came. And then when we were at Couchsurfing, we had um, companies like um, Legitco and um, TrustCloud approaching us saying, well, can we access your data? Will you share your data with us? And we will create universal reputation for the sharing economy. Our response was like, well, we don't know who's going to be the one that's going to win this battle. So we're not sure on that front. But then also, that's our moat. That's our, you know, our, should we be afraid of sharing our data? And then we're not going to have what we have here. You know, that's a typical business kind of fear, right? Mm. So so it, everybody gets paralyzed and nobody knows how to move forward. Right? So I started thinking about that problem for a long time. And I thought that you can get there. You can get to universal reputation, but you really need to cr- arrange the game mechanics such that it's a it's the right kind of give and give and get viral loop loop. So if you give feedback, you can receive feedback, and that give to get unlocking. That can be a powerful engine that will get us to scale and create that our dream. So been working on that for a while. Mm. Um, it's been quite a quite a, quite a cha- that's been one of the, the bigger challenges I've ever worked on as well because it's kind of a long game. If that makes sense. Yeah, gotcha. So. Before we move on to what else you're up to, where are you at now with couch surfing, and in what, um, what are what what are the plans? I know you said you got a few, but you can't reveal. But yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm not involved in the day to day basis anymore, so I can't really comment on what the day to day plans are. But I'm hoping that um, couch surfing can find its way and and uh, just keep growing. I think that I want to have. Uh, backstage pass to the world available to more and more and more people. I'm very, very thankful that it is there and and it's able to bring that value to the world. Like if somebody wants to travel the world and they want to experience the local culture, culture means there. And it is ready for anybody to use it. That makes me very happy. I wish it would I wish we could grow it and uh, bring that to more people and make it um, work for more people. Right now I'm I'm uh, my fear is that maybe not enough people can use it. And just, it's harder to find couches than maybe we'd like it to be. Of course, we want to continue to make it easier to find couches, and, I, and, I th- and we always have and we always will over time. 
Mm, awesome. So what are you working on now? Tell us about Wonder. Tell us about Masterly. Tell us what's happening. Yeah. So I just mentioned a little bit about Wonder, the 360 feedback app. We, um, it's kind of, it's a long game. Like it's going to take a long time to figure out how to do universal reputation. So I've been working with folks at Harvard, Stanford, MIT, Columbia, Cornell, all these different schools, academics, some of the really, really inspiring folks who have brought a lot of really great technologies to the world. And you know, they're advising us on this project. It could take a few more years. I don't know, but we want to make sure that, you know, that they say that the number one predictor of success of a startup is timing. So we want to make sure that we're there at the right time. So we've, been, we've optimized the company such to do that. And as we built the company, we knew that it was going to be a real big challenge to be able to take on universal reputation. In fact, it wouldn't, wouldn't be like straightforward, like we know we got to build this product and we got to get, get some people who can build that kind of widget. Okay, there are certain projects that are maybe easier or certain parts of them are easier. This one, it was blue sky, blue ocean. We don't know how this needs to work. We understand that if you can have a repository where people feel safe about their reputation and, and if they have it there and they can control it, and you solve all the game mechanics problems of people gaming the system, that's super valuable. That means we can accelerate our lives. We can um, improve our transactions and relationships. It's super important, but it might take a while a while to get there. So uh, we built a new equity system when we built this company. We said, we're going to reserve 75% of the company for everyone who works on it. Mm. And everyone's going to record their hours with their hourly rate over time, and we're not going to be afraid of adding people to the project because it's not like we're doing stock options where it's a big deal and it's all these problems and people are afraid of like people are going to get some kind of ownership and there's going to be all these stockholders' rights and all that stuff that uh, we just totally separated financial upside and control and said, we're just going to give away a lot of financial upside to, to harness and inspire as many people as possible. I, I always consider it like the shower moment. You're, you're in the shower and you could be thinking about anything, right? Hmm. And suddenly you're like, oh, the problems of the day on Wonder. Yeah, I want to, that's what I want to think about right now because I'm aligned with that equity, right? Or hmm. you're laying in bed late at night and you're just thinking and you're kind of going to sleep. And you're like, boy, it would be great if we could solve that problem of universal reputation. Let me keep thinking about it because I know that I'm an owner of that. I am, I can, and we made it so you could see your ownership in real time. You could see it in this, in this, in this dashboard. And that really inspired a lot of people to, you know, as they're recording their hours and their time and all that, they would see, uh, wow, I own 5% of the company. This is awesome. I am like a founder. So I gave away 75% of the company from day one. Yeah, and, wow. Um, yeah, as a, you know, it was a bit of an experiment. We didn't know exactly all the knobs and dials we needed to create. But over the course of three years and other people begging us to use the technology, and then we gave them the technology to use it as well, which is a whole, big, a whole legal stack plus a technology stack. Um, and then we spun it off, and now we have a company called Mastly, M-A-S-T dot L-Y, and it is bringing this technology and the Mastly way to the world. We already have about 10 customers, about five at least that are paying um, on our way to 20. So it's kind of a SaaS, you would say, it's software as a service, or it's legal as a service, or you might even say equity as a service. Mm. Pretty cool when you can bolt on an equity system onto any company or any project, or any uh, partnership, or any sole proprietor. Like, it could be a few people get together, hey, let's dabble on this product or project or whatever. And then we all sign the docs together, and we're all part of this 
project in Massly, and then we can press the button, and now all of a sudden we're a, a C corp, and it just yeah. follows right through, you know. And sweat and, hours and actually kick in. The sweat hours start at yeah. the very beginning and, and follow straight through. You don't need to have like a whole big crazy, you know, legal change along the way. We just handle all that for you. It mm. Makes it super easy. You can focus instead of focusing on. The, how do I get to build this company and fundraising? And you've got like ten, as a founder, you have like ten important things to focus on. Massly helps reduce that number down to about five. It really does cut through a lot of the distraction, and it's, it adds a huge amount of transparency to the project. Not everybody can see what their percentage of ownership is, what size is that sweat pool compared to all the stock in the company, and um, and they can everybody can see what everybody else has too. I mean, there's a bunch of knobs and dials and options, but generally that's the default setup. So. It creates for more trust in a company, and it, it kind of creates a, I would say, a mass, the massively way of doing things. Investors can be more satisfied and feel better that they're using a standard and and um, you know, approved way that they like, and that founders can feel good that they're giving some, they're giving something or using something that's fair, and then it's inspiring and transparent, and then the uh, contributors, employees, and and contractors and advisors, all those people feel good that it's tax optimized. We don't have a situation where it's so complex from a tax perspective and the company can't even advise you and you don't even really know what's going on. And then finally, in the end, you find out all the, all the equity was clawed back and uh, only the investors got anything. This system is, makes it really clear what's going to happen when and in the future. So some really, really, really proud of. And um, we are looking for uh, beta testers right now. Wow, that's really exciting. Um, just on that, I'm really curious. Um, do you believe all startups should be giving out equity to their employees? Uh, what are your thoughts on that that whole front? Well, see, it's a really challenging question. Um, and I've seen, I mean, I read about this stuff every day, all day, <laughs> maybe all day is hyperbole, but I read at least an hour of all of the articles coming out on this. Uh, Andreessen Horowitz pr- produces a lot of content on this subject. Mm. Um, so on one side, you'd say, well, early employees aren't as good as later employees. There's a, a, a kind of a, there's a thought in Silicon Valley and elsewhere that early employees are more generalists. They're not as skilled. And it's really the later employees that build the, um, you know, take it from something okay to something dynamite that's worthy of a sale or an IPO or whatever. Yeah. Flip side, a flip side of that would say that, well, it's really the early employees that took all the risk to get it to that shiny gem state or at least look like it's kind of a diamond in the rough that you could say those later more skilled folks said oh yeah that thing is valuable thanks for optimizing it and now we'll take it from here who i think it's equal i think both are valuable you need both so to me i would say absolutely people early on should be offered equity and um not many people know this it's becoming more well known thank god uh is that early equity is often quote-unquote clawed back. So you're given some kind of options and you're told maybe that this is a percent or two of a company and you're like, great, this is exciting. But then you find out later that those options, you know, maybe you're let go or you decide to leave in a couple of years. Uh, you only have 90 days in which to purchase the options. So that means that after 90 days, those options are just vaporized. And most people can't afford those options. They could be $100,000. Yeah, that's, that's really dodgy. And, that, and that's what a lot of startups do. It is. It's, it can be – usually it's – I would like to say the founders don't understand, especially if they're first-time founder, they don't get it. And most second-time founders are like, ah, I don't like that. Can't we fix that? 
but then the lawyers say, no, no, it's just the way it is. And there's so many other problems to solve. It's just you can't solve that. But this, by the time you're a third-time founder, you're really annoyed with this. And you see no, um, and because you realize that it's not really a win-win. You're, it's kind of a, a shell game. You're like, oh, let me give you this quote-unquote equity. And then um, it disappears later. You do that enough, and people are going to get jaded. They're not going to believe in that equity anymore, and they're not going to try their hardest. They're going to say, show me the cash. And that is not a great way <laughs> yeah. to align a team to solve a hard problem. Not, yeah. not even close. So, so you're passionate you're, about that. Yeah, yeah, I can see. Yeah, so you're obviously on on the side that you should be, and you should do it via mostly like a system where you essentially you get what you put in. Sweat. I would like. Yeah, I think that the best system is a system that's fair, that's, that's transparent to, as far as it can be. People can feel inspired by it, that it's that, that they're either going to try really hard, that they can believe in what they think they're going to get later on. If all of those things are true, we'll have a system that people believe in overall and will work hard toward, and they'll be everybody will be thinking like a founder. That's the kind of world we want. If everybody's thinking like a founder, you don't have to go and do micromanaging. It instantly follows that, oh, okay, we have a company. It's worth $10 million. I can see it right there. I have this fraction of that fraction of the equity pool. It's worth that amount so far today, let's say. And I want that number to go up. Okay, how do I make that number go up? Well, I guess it depends on the value of a company. Well, what, why, how does a company get valued? I guess people who know about such things see that it's doing something valuable. Okay, so we need to, do, give, we need to create more value, true value, not fake value, but true value. And then everybody's thinking around, them, well, I'm making decisions every day. Is, are these decisions I'm making making more value in this company for this company or not? Or am I basing my decisions on, you know, politics, ego, you know, making more cash, whatever. Once you get everybody thinking about that and aligned and you can create the right alignment and incentive system, it could be very powerful. People start making all the right little micro decisions and it all leads up to something um, down the road. This is much different than it would have been otherwise. Mm, yeah. Especially in the early stages, getting your team aligned and finding that right fit is so extremely critical, especially once you've passed the MVP stage and you're, you know, you've, you've found fit. Um, yeah. Even, yeah. Like it's, it's so key to get the right people on, on the, on the bus. Um, I'm curious you know, something that, you know, one of my mentors always said to me, he said to me, you know, Nathan, just be very protective of equity. Don't just give it away. If you can hire, hire out, um, hire services, if you can share profits, those kinds of things. What are your thoughts there? I, I think that that's an antiquated perspective from uh, based on the old system. The old sweat equity system or the stock option system is generally like this. Board decides to set aside 10% of company for stock options. Mm. Now, CEO and you know leadership team, whoever says, "Okay, great, we've got we've got we've got 10 million units, which is 10% of the company, and we've got to give that out, and we've got to get there. And we don't want to have to go back to the board and ask for more because that'll be diluting everyone. That's not going to be fun. And so now I have a scarcity mindset. Okay, so now I'm interviewing employee A. All right, employee. Uh, so, um, what's the, and you're thinking, what's the smallest amount I could give this person and still get them to work hard uh, and so on. So that whole system isn't inspiring. It's, I think it's much better when you say, Hey everybody, we've got this pool. It's 15% of the company. It's worth $1.5 million and we're all participating together and we're all seeing in real time what portion of that pool we have. We could add another four percent of the pool. Great. Add five more people. Fine. Not a big deal. Um, that gets away from that that scarcity mindset, 
it also gets you away from your bifurcating control and financial upside. You can say, hey, let's share around a lot of that wealth. But you know, we don't have to have the, the a lot of attorneys are afraid, well, if you get too many, too many um, owners in the kitchen, you're gonna have chaos, stockholders' rights, people could throw wrenches in the works, could hold you hostage, whatever. If if you do it smartly, you can solve these problems. And it, so the old system, it needs it's time for an update. It, it people are really screaming for it in Silicon Valley and and beyond. So I really hope we can all solve this problem together. We're giving it a go with Massly. Uh, I hope other people out there will try to solve problems as well. Mm, okay, awesome. Um, thank you for answering that. Um, that was great. So let's talk about lessons. Um, so you're based out of are you, are you still based out of San Fran? Yeah, I spend at least half my time in San Francisco. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of smart people, you've done incredibly game-changing work. You know, the the work that you've done with, with couch surfing for that, you know, a lot of people in this world know what that is. I'm really curious, you know, some lessons that you can share with our audience from building a, a legacy-type brand or, or creating a movement at the scale that you've done. And I feel that, you know, you're only scratching the surface in many ways. Yeah, well, I have to say one of my one of my greatest lessons is um, when it comes to hiring developers, right? That's a, that's a tough, a tricky thing to do. Developers, tech folks, is just hire the best folks you can. Pay them as much money as you can afford, and I think less is more in that department. Fewer Jedi's is better than more uh, people who are you know still learning. Um, I had to learn that the hard way. I you know I came from a, a place where I wanted to be more inclusive, right? I want to include everybody. Mm. So that kind of that would had to be that was a powerful lesson I had to learn the hard way. Other lessons are uh, you know really uh, it's tricky like you know <laughs> incorporating couchsurfing as a for profit a nonprofit and then having to go through all of that stuff just because I had you know oh just I had a it seemed like a good idea it seemed like a nice idea but lo and behold it was the biggest time suck known to my entire life and a lot of people's lives and it would have been a lot easier if we if I had more um, done more research up front and was aware of the implications of trying to start a, a, a you know basically what is a an internet company as a nonprofit but now you know there's many many more ways to do that but uh, it, it, I had to learn that the hard way. That was a huge lesson, right? Um, Did you getting, have a board? And, 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 uh, that's what I was going to say. Is we didn't have an advisory board. We just had thousands of thousands of people um, sharing w- with us what we should do. But nobody said anything about that. <laughs> everything <laughs> said everything about other things. So what would have been great is I should have approached people that I didn't know anybody at that time that were deep into the nonprofit world and said, "Hey, this is the this is the long term path I'm seeing. What do you think?" And maybe I would have gotten some people saying, oh, oh you're, you might have some problems with that. Um, um, that would have been a good idea. I think you, you just brought up the advisory board. I wish that we had done more of an advisory board in the beginning. When I started um, Wonder, that was the first thing I did. We have 20 people in all walks of life, top of their game, uh, in, in all areas of the things that we're working on. So, uh, And we're doing that now with Massley. So I'd ask if anybody knows of, if you are or if anybody knows of folks who um, are experts in equity and um, benefit law, we want to talk to you. We, want, we are looking for advisors and we are looking for people to help us build it. So please, please get in touch. Awesome. Well, look, um, you know, where's the, we'll, we'll wrap, we'll work towards wrapping up, uh, Casey, but where's the best place people can find you? And uh, yeah, we, you know, where's the best place yeah. people can find you? I think the easiest to go to CaseyFenton.com. Uh, if you go there, um, there's all of my projects are 
uh, listed, and you can click into them, and you can uh, you can email me. You can get in touch. Awesome. All right. Well, look. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for your time, man. This has been an awesome interview. Yeah. Thank you so much, Nathan. I'm just double high fiving you right now. What you're doing and um, the um, awareness you're bringing to the world is is incredible. You are doing uh, you're doing so many people a huge favor, not only on the inspiration level, but just on the on the uh, just the straight up logistics of what do you, what do you have to do as a founder starting a company? Uh, both of those, the the, the inspiration that uh, connecting with their heart and, and spirit, and uh, connecting with the the logical uh, rubber meets the road. What do I need to do today? And you're night packaging it in a really beautiful like beautiful uh, gift, little present, and, and handing it to people. So I'm just double high fiving you. Thank you so much. Oh well, thank you. I really appreciate the kind words, dude. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.